Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. With me, Kevin Day, and football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Kevin. Uh, no time for niceties, I'm afraid, because we have a packed show, uh, and also because we spent two hours together the other day doing somebody else's podcast. So uh, I feel I feel the small talk's done now, Kieran, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Uh, very good, though. Football CFB, if you want to listen to that. Um, it's questions day, Kieran, but we have some extra garnish for the good people listening at home or in their cars or whatever. Uh, later, we'll be hearing from former Man United player Mark Lynch, who's been speaking to Kieran about moving out of football into a different world completely. Now, do you know what I like about that sentence, Kieran? Guys are in former Man United player. Not legend, not hero, just player. That's how it should be. There's too many heroes and legends in these days. Mark Lynch was a good player. He was a player. Uh, but before that, Kieran, and before the questions, we have some matters arising, I think is the best way of putting it. Uh, first of all, uh, it says here, this came as news to me, uh, you tweeted this week an anecdote about cricket legend Ian Botham, which apparently needs some explaining. And I suppose I should say, as this is, this is the price of football, uh, ex scumfort player Ian Botham. I should say. So, what uh, <laughs> What did you tweet, Kerr? I, I almost dread to ask this question. What did you tweet and, and why does it need explaining? I follow you on Twitter. I don't understand how I missed this. Well, my, my footnote in, in cricketing history was I'm the person who told Ian Botham that he'd been selected to play for England. Really? So th- yeah, this was uh, hmm. 1977. Yeah, uh, it will come as probably no surprise to you or the listeners is that in the pre-spreadsheet days, I used to collect autographs. <laughs> and <laughs> hello, ladies. <laughs> you can just imagine them forming an orderly queue, can't you? <laughs> Oh, there, there are some, I'm sure there are many ladies and, and also gentlemen who would be attracted to somebody who has a penchant for autographs and keeps them nicely catalogued, as I'm sure you do. <laughs> so um, uh, Somerset were playing Sussex uh, at Hove. So I, yeah, clearly I was living in Brighton at the time. Um, you, we used to know all the hotels that the teams uh, stayed at. So uh-huh. I was outside the hotel waiting for Ian Botham to come out because it was a John Player, uh, John Player match, Sunday afternoon match. So they come down the previous night. And of course, those days it was pre uh, pre mobile phones. So the team got announced on the uh, ten a.m. Uh, radio two radio five announcement, 
Uh, so, so I have my transistor radio with me because as well as collecting autographs, I used to listen to transistor radios. Um, and uh, five minutes later, out walks uh, Ian Botham and uh, Sir Viv. Um, and I run up to him with a, with, a, with a picture of him and say, can you sign this, please, Miss Botham? Congratulations, you, you've just been picked for England. And he goes, have I? And he, and he turns around to Viv Richards um, and, and he literally leapt into his arms and started waving his arms about, screaming, I've been selected, I've been selected. So, so that was it. So I've, I've, always, uh, I've, I've always claimed all the merits of uh, Sir Ian's career as, as an England player. And it's only because yesterday or the day before he, he's now been made uh, a peer so, so that's so I thought. Well, I might as well uh, claim some of that as well. Yes, yeah. Except he's been made appear for his uh, loyalty to the Brexit program. So, if you're claiming credit for that, Kieran, well done. He was. Um, I of course have met uh, Ian Botham. He's uh, very much an alpha male. He's uh, he was less excited to see me than he was to see you, Kieran. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, it just it just occurred to me, Kieran. You you know when you go to football games uh, at at, I do. at Brighton. Uh, which is it is football. Yeah, actually, that's no, quite attractive football. Sometimes it's just results wise, it's not brilliant. Says the Palace fan. I've never asked you. Are you? Do you buy two programs? Do you buy one to write on and one to keep at home? No, I, I, I never buy programs. Oh, okay. I, don't, don't interest me. I've, I've, I've normally got my laptop with me, uh, updating various bits and pieces of uh, financial data that's flown into to my atmosphere uh, during the day. There you are, football fans. Only at the Amex Stadium would somebody be sitting through halftime on their laptop looking at that. That's, that, that I'm, I'm amazed that Sky Sports haven't picked you out in previous years. Okay, who's this bloke who's not queuing for beer? Um, uh, now, next matter arising. And and as if by as if stung, Kieran, by your recent criticism, Sunderland chairman Stuart Donald has resigned, and his asking price for the club is raising many an eyebrow. Um, Stuart Donald has uh, has lost his appeal. I think it's fair to say with the with the Sunderland fan base. But he did have a scheduled meeting with a couple of fan groups. Um, I think this is on Thursday night or Friday night. Uh, one of which is called Red and White Army. I, I think it's fair to say that the discussions became quite heated. Um, and he was saying that he was being forced to sell the club due to abuse to him and his family from fans. Yeah, no, yeah, no, nobody condones that type of behaviour. Uh, you know, it, it, by, by all means, you, you can dislike um, the owners. But if, if you think that uh, Stuart Donald's had it bad, he's, he's nothing compared to the grief that uh, that Mike Ashley has had uh, and the Glazers and plenty of other owners. So that did seem a, a, perhaps a, a little bit uh, poor me. Um, he was also claiming that uh, the, the abuse that he's got has put off prospective buyers of the club. Now, they, they wouldn't give a hoot. You know, because they're saying, well, you know, he's he's taken all the heat uh, for his uh, for his ability to take the club with the uh, with, with income, which is ten times that of the average of other League One clubs, yeah. and, and keep the club in League One for two years. Um, so I don't think they'd be too worried about that. Uh, but the big issue, I think, was um, he he revealed the sale price to be thirty seven and a half million pounds, which is effectively what he paid for it. Um, and he's saying, well, yeah, that that's the reason why I, I, I'm, I'm demanding this price. But he's failed to ignore the fact that when he bought the club, it still had two years of parachute payments to come. Mm. Um, it still had a, a, you know, a pretty talented uh, squad and so on. And, and during that period of time, it's a, 
it, it's got nowhere. You know, Sunderland have failed to get uh, back into the championship. And, and it's a bit like buying a house, having uh, you know, have it struck by lightning, having an earthquake next door, and then still expect to be able to sell it for what you paid for it. So th- th- there was this issue. So I, I, I was interviewed by the Sunderland Echo um, on Friday or Saturday following this. And you know, they asked me, how, how on earth did he come up with that price? And to me, it, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, we, we have to look at market prices. We, we know what happened uh, in terms of property. We know what happened in terms of business and, and other things which have been sold on. Um, to expect to get your money back uh, seems uh, at best naive and at worst uh, overly optimistic. What would you consider a fair price? Because to, to me, whatever the state of football in Sunderland at the moment, they are a club with enormous potential huge fan base they are cynically if you want i imagine if you wanted to make money out of a club in future Sunderland would be one you'd look at and go do you know what five ten years time this could be a little cash cow for us so what would you be expecting him to charge what would have been a realistic figure well really i i went i went and did my sums i looked at some comparisons to other clubs added on a little bit for Sunderland's potential i think if you got twenty to twenty-five million, that would probably be fair. But you got to you got to be wary of Sunderland. Even when the club was in the Premier League, it was still losing money. Oh, and you okay. look at some of the payments that were going out of that club. Yeah, they got through three or four chief executives who were on huge sums of money, yeah. and every time they left, they got a huge payoff as well. I, I do genuinely worry for the club because you know you, you and I we've both been there you know to Roker Park and to the Stadium of Light as as fans. And it's always a great day out. Um, they're passionate fans. They're really funny guys and gals as well uh, when you meet them in the pub beforehand. But the way that the club has been run uh, for a long period of time genuinely causes me concerns because you you shouldn't be losing that amount of money you shouldn't be getting through that amount of managers that number of chief executives that there's something toxic and and ultimately the culture of a club is shaped by what happens at the very top and, and I, I just want whoever takes over at Sunderland to be that right person who's got the best interests of the club at heart Stuart Donald, when he came in, there was all this talk of a five-year plan and things of this nature, but he was hawking the club around for, to, make a, to make a dollar out of it um, from pretty much sort of six months into ownership, which, which, which does, does make me feel very uneasy. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm with you. If, if we were to do a league table of clubs that get mentioned most on this podcast, I think Sunderland and Charlton would probably be very near the top. And I, I almost want to apologise to some of the fans. I would love to get to a period where we can go six, seven, eight whole weeks without Sunderland being one of the lead stories. But unfortunately, at the moment, that's not the case. Now, European football, Kieran, could be set for a huge shake-up as the Dutch and Belgium top flights open talks on a merger. Is this a long-term thing or is this COVID-related? Um, I, I think this has been accelerated as a result of COVID. I mean, th- there has been talk of this mumbling and bumbling along for many years. I'm sure you, you'll recall talk of uh, the so-called Atlantic Absolutely. League, yeah. which yeah, Belgium, the Netherlands, Scotland and Portugal, I think, was the claim at the time. 
Um, but now the, the the Dutch and the Belgian authorities, or certainly some of the clubs involved, have uh, they they commissioned a report by Deloitte, and, and you know Deloitte are pretty famous in football for their annual money league. Um, and presently, th- those two leagues together make around eighty million pounds a year from TV. And the Deloitte report apparently came up with a, a figure of four hundred million. So. Yeah, the, the clubs in Belgium and Netherlands who, let's face it, you know, Belgium are presently ranked number one by FIFA yeah. uh, as far as international clubs are concerned. So so Belgium is, is, is presently punching above its weight. Uh, again, yeah, we, we get all misty-eyed when we think about the, the Dutch teams of the 70s and, you know, and, and beyond there. Um, it, they, it's always been nations which have produced amazing footballers. But their domestic leagues um, haven't really managed to compete on a European sphere for, for many years, simply because their best players get get uh, you know they, they get nicked by the, the bigger clubs in Europe. Um, so this would need approval by UEFA, and then we start to enter UEFA politics, and this is where it gets a bit murky, of course. Um, the, the the likes of Agnelli. Um, at Juventus and uh, the people in charge of the Liga, they seem to be quite in favour of this uh, this Benny Lux League or Benny League, I think it will be called, um, because that could open the doors to the European Super League, yeah. which which uh, you know, which as we know, some people are very keen on. And, and and what would happen under those circumstances is that Champions League places will be determined by promotion and relegation, rather than what we see at present. Is that you know, in theory, uh, you know, the side that wins the Welsh domestic league has a chance of winning the Champions League in, in exactly the same way as those clubs that enter the FA Cup at the, the start of August have a hope of getting to Wembley the following season. And as football romantics, we, we're all in favour of that. Um, so the, there's, there's enthusiasm from some of the other leagues in Europe because this could be the start of things. And that's why UEFA itself is opposed because it fears this could be uh, a, a clandestine way of getting rid of the Champions League as we know it. Do you know my theory that you and I have been married for too long, Kieran? I, you know, I, I write little notes underneath the question. You know, I do the question in block capitals uh, as I don't like reading off a laptop for the pod. It feels unprofessional. And then I do my little notes in, in smaller letters. And underneath my, on my little notes, I've got Atlantic League, question mark, Scotland, Belgium, Holland, Portugal. Uh, and then UEFA politics. This is, this is, we've been together way too long. The UEFA thing, Kieran, is interesting as well because UEFA and FIFA were both really, really against uh, a Great Britain Olympic team because uh, uh, they, they feel that it submerges the identity of each individual football league. So I would, I would imagine UEFA would be fully against this on that on those grounds as well. But in, in terms of broadcasters, would they be in favour of this? Is this? Is this one of the reasons they're doing this to, to up the broadcasting rights? Very much so, um, and, and I think if you threw um, the two big clubs from the SPFL into that equation as well, and the reason why we're having the discussion is that I, I picked up this story from the Daily Record. Yeah, the, the SPFL deal is, is worth around about twenty six million a year. If they go into if if Celtic and Rangers go into a deal which is worth four hundred million a year, then you know from, yeah. from their point of view, it will be far more lucrative. So, you know, watch and see. Um, COVID is an opportunity for these things to be pushed through because there's so many clubs who are either broke or close to broke in European football as a result of the pandemic and the close down of football. 
It's interesting. You talk about you know the old days of seventies. We all remember football fans, our generation, Ajax, of course, and Feyenoord and Anderlecht. But in, in, if we take Anderlecht as, as uh, Belgium's top club, uh, where would they be compared to a Premier League club or a Championship club? Um, they would be um, sort of mid-tier Championship, wow. um, and that's assuming that they get into European football. Well, okay. So, um, yeah, which which they tend to do. So, um, you know, I would say they'd be sort of you know the equivalent of some a club like Derby, which is you know good good support, um, but ultimately can't go to the next level um, because the, the the Premier League is just so far beyond yeah. uh, the resources. Yeah. I, I, when, when Leeds got promoted um, on on uh, Thursday night, which is, you know, they, they, they thoroughly deserved to the best, played the best football. I actually looked at them. If you take the 16 years that Leeds have been out of the um, Premier League, if you add all of the money together for those 16 years, it still amounts to less money than Chelsea, Manchester United, Manchester City or Liverpool uh, earned last season in a single year. Wow, really? So, yeah, that, that is the extent of the gap between yeah. the haves and the have-nots. Yes, Andalek's kit as well. I love Andalek's kit. Sorry, I was listening to the football finance bit there, Kieran, seriously, but I was also thinking about Andalek's kit a little bit. Um, now, question time. Uh, we've got some good questions this week, as ever. Thank you very much for sending them in. Uh, now, question number one, Kieran, is from Lewis Milne. Uh, Lewis Milne is Scottish. I feel safe to say that. Uh, and Lewis's question is, following on from Gordon Strachan's recent comments about our game, i.e. the Scottish game, why isn't Scottish football putting more money into grassroots and lower leagues to make it more professional? Uh, as you recall, we talked about this. Um, in fact, we talked about this on Friday on uh, uh, Football CFB, which is a Scottish-based pod. But we talked about it at length a few weeks ago because Gordon Strachan had lots to say about pitches, academies, scouting, basically football at every level in Scotland, didn't he? Uh, very much so. Ultimately, th- this is a money issue. If, if you take a look at the the way that academies are organised here in England, there are four categories of academy. Now, if you're category one, and um, yeah, Palace have just got category one, so yes, yeah, that, that is excellent for them. Yeah, um, I think I think you're looking at a, a minimum cost of you know five to ten million, probably more towards the ten million pounds a year. Uh, if you drop to category two, it's it's one to one and a half million. Um, the 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 median, and we, uh, we we go back to our our maths discussions from Thursday. The median income in the Scottish Premiership is six point eight million, and if you drop down into the Scottish Championship, it's it's probably about one and a half million. So it's simply a case of resources. Uh, clubs in Scotland don't have enough money coming in to be able to fund academies to the same extent as clubs in England. And this creates a bit of a vicious circle. They've not got the money coming in, so therefore it doesn't develop the players. Therefore, they go to overseas to recruit, which means that they've got less money coming in because the, you know, the, the, the product's not as attractive. You know, the people don't feel as as closely linked to the clubs. And it, it, it's, a, it, it's, it's a vicious circle. And it's such a tragedy for football because... Scotland had a superb club for well, sorry, sorry, had superb players for so many years. Yeah. As, as we said uh, when we were chatting to Callum on, on on the other podcast the other day, um, every uh, every English first division club, I Premier League club, would have a couple of Scottish players, mm. um, and they were seen as real coups uh, if you managed to get one of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, our next question is from Alan Roxburgh. 
who sounds Scottish, and uh, if it's the person I'm thinking of, it could indeed be definitely Scottish, but it's probably not the person I'm thinking of, so who knows. Uh, anyway, his question is, Alan's question, with the potential takeover of Newcastle United seemingly still ongoing, can I ask Kieran, uh, there's no point asking me, Alan, so yes, ask Kieran, can I ask Kieran how complicated the deal will be to complete? And is any of the delay down to Mike Ashley? Now, I added the seemingly uh, to that question, Kieran, because as we discussed on Thursday, Saudi Arabia has pulled the plug on their broadcasting deal, which shows the Premier League there, which may indicate the deal is struggling. But if it is still going ahead, is any of that delay down to Mike Ashley or would he be desperate to offload the club as quickly as possible? Oh, Mike Ashley is, is definitely keen to divest himself of Newcastle United. There's no doubt about that. The reason why it's taken so long is that he's been hawking the club around for uh, at least a couple of years. I, I think some of the things that, that might put people off, which which could be put into uh, Mike Ashley's bin, is that when you're buying Newcastle United Football Club, if you go into the, the small print of the account, which, as you know, I'm no stranger to doing, mm-hmm. um, you're actually buying 22 different companies. Oh. So he's he's set up, you know, Newcastle United kit and Newcastle United pies and Newcastle United this, that and the other, which makes it trickier. You know, if you're just buying Newcastle United itself, then you know exactly what you've got. And, you know, th- this is also an issue as far as those people who are looking at Wigan Athletic are concerned. What exactly are you buying from uh, the administrators? So you need to list it all out. So by having it split between 22 different companies, it just makes it a bit of a, you know, bit of a pain in the backside. Yeah, sorry, Kieran, can, out- can, I, can I just interrupt you there? Because that's, that's intrigued me. First of all, and you know I hate interrupting you, Kieran, but we, we can't see each other at the moment because we have no Zoom facility for some reason atmospherics i believe um it's raining here so that might be why um also i've got really bad hay fever today you may have noticed why that is because it's raining i don't know so is this is this a common thing then that you would you would turn a club into 20 25 different companies because that seems a bit odd but also i'm quite tickled by the idea that the saudi arabian negotiators suddenly came to a bit that went pies what, what we don't want the pies why are we buying the pies we want the club <laughs> which is a, it's, a, it's a very pleasing benny hill image of top saudi businessmen <laughs> all right we'll taste the pies then but go on um you you do see clubs split into two or three organizations you know it, it we've got it at brighton you've got it at palace and so on um but 22 is quite extreme now now a lot of these a lot of these companies aren't even trading so it makes you wonder what exactly is is actually up to um I don't think it should be levelled at him in terms of the delays and so. I mean, Mike Ashley famously bought Newcastle United without doing any due diligence himself. He yeah. just wandered in, agreed a price, and, and that was it. Um, he is familiar with deals. He is looking to make a profit, and I think that's always been his bugbear. Um, but the, the the delays are being are very much due to the Premier League, and as we know, the issues of. Um, the, the owners and directors test, and it, uh, to me, it all revolves around the the the, the criminality issue. Right. Whilst the the authorities in Saudi have no criminal records there, somebody's looked at the small print as far as the owners and directors test, and it says a crime which could be considered to be a crime here in England. So 
if there is any connection between the owners and the the pirate TV organization, um, then potentially that could be the uh, the cause of this delay. Um, and also the fact that the, the Premier League is, is struggling to find um, a legal firm who will represent them. Oh, that's interesting to know. Um, uh, again, this is an ongoing situation. Just before we leave this one, though, Kieran, is there a scenario whereby of these 22 companies, Mike Ashley retains two of them, say, Pies and, and Floodlights, for example, and the Saudis or new owners come in? Or, or would you just expect that all 22 companies would be sold as one Newcastle PLC, whatever? It, 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 it sh- they should all be under an umbrella company, which which controls them all. So provided you buy that, you buy everything underneath. Now, in theory, that there's nothing to stop Mike Ashley saying, well, um, I'm, I'm going to sell one of those companies to myself before the deal goes through. Uh, and he's in, still in charge of the floodlights or he's still in charge of the merchandise division or whatever. Um, but I don't think any buyer would be keen on that because – you buy a football club in order to control it, um, and that would be your main focus. And uh, if, if you talk to Glasgow Rangers fans, uh, you know they've got legacy issues from when Mike Ashley owned a proportion of their club, and that's cost uh, Glasgow Rangers a fortune uh, in terms of, of a legal fees uh, and b lost merchandise sales. For those Newcastle fans listening, Kieran, and indeed those fans of the pod in Saudi Arabia, is your instinct that this deal is still going to go through? Um, I'm less confident than I was uh, 10 days ago because of the decision by the Saudi authorities to to ban Bayin. Uh, because what, what's the point in owning the most popular club potentially in Saudi Arabia when, in theory, the, the broadcasting uh, company who holds the rights is, is self-banned in the country. Um, there, there must be some rationale behind it. Uh, you know, whether this is a bit of sabre-rattling by the Saudi authorities towards the Premier League, we don't know. You know clearly, they are they get there fairly peeved at the, the delays in making the decision. Sure. Okay, our next question is from Greg Clayton. Uh, almost sounds like Claymore, so he could be Scottish, but Greg says, I'm a disgruntled Tranmere fan. Uh, I think that's a tautology, uh, Greg. I don't think there's any other Tranmere fan who isn't disgruntled at the moment. Um, Greg says, there's been lots of talk about possible legal action, especially after the decision uh, by Ligue 1 to relegate. I paused there because I was so determined to get the pronunciation right that I almost made it sound like I, I was determined to get the pronunciation right and didn't speak French naturally every day. So Ligue decision to relegate teams with points per game was overturned. Now, so if Tranmere did win a legal case, what would be the outcome? Reinstatement, compensation, something else? And before you answer the question, can you tell us a little bit about that Ligue decision being overturned? Well, when the French decision to effectively freeze football and and, and make the decisions in respect of the existing table took place the clubs at the bottom weren't happy um, and therefore they they have uh, they have launched a legal challenge which has now effectively overturned the the french authorities where the, but where they go next is we're still uncertain so at present um i think there are two options available to tranmere should they decide to go through the legal route um, they could seek compensation, and, and we've seen that in the SPFL mm. with both Hearts and Partick demanding £10 million compensation between them for, for relegation. And, and that is also a threat which is being undertaken by Barnsley, 
who are presently at the bottom end of of the championship. Oh, that's as much to do with uh, accusations against clubs such as Sheffield Wednesday and Derby yeah. with regard to uh, their their stadia sales. So, so Barnsley are threatening uh, either a compensation approach or the to overturn the decision, and and as well as in Ligue 1, um, we've got the uh, Eredivisie in, in the Netherlands, where promotion to clubs such as De Graafschap and SC Cambuur um, has uh, has resulted in those clubs threatening legal action, but I don't think it's necessarily um, transformed it into a case, a case as yet. Um, the, the problem with all of these things is that ultimately football leagues are members clubs. So if members make their own rules yeah. and effectively are then seen to be applying their own constitution, um, the, 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 the natural view of the courts is, well, it's your constitution. We'd rather not get involved. Um, but you know, we, we will have to wait and see with regards to this. Um, and also, you know, has the EFL set a precedent by saying to the National League that we will only accept clubs being promoted from the National League via the playoffs if you are playing next season? Could Barnsley potentially apply this themselves? Because there's no guarantee that football is going to take place in in League One next season in the EFL um, if uh, if, if we don't get the approval from the, the the governing bodies, so it's it's an ongoing mess. Um, you know, you can understand clubs being unhappy. You can certainly understand clubs fans being unhappy. Only people happy. They've got silver tongues. Yeah, of course. Um, your Dutch pronunciation is much better than my French pronunciation, which is annoying me a little bit. Um, you mentioned Hearts and Partick. Uh, taking legal action to seek compensation, that led to them being charged by the Scottish authorities for doing that. I mean, is there not a danger that that could happen to Tramia, that Tramia take legal action and the EFL charge them for doing so? Well, but, well potentially, I mean, without without seeing the EFL constitution in, in depth, uh, I, I tend to just read the financial fair play pages of it. Um, you know, I think we'd, we'd probably need a bit of, uh, perhaps we could get Kelly or one of our other legal friends to uh, give us an opinion. But uh, normally, whenever I've asked a lawyer for an opinion, the answer has been, it depends. Yeah, of course. All right. Um, our next question comes from Chris, just Chris. So no clue there to whether he's Scottish or not, but he's a Norwich fan. Uh, so maybe not. Uh, Chris is a Norwich fan, as I said, and and I like this because Chris likes to show support for his club, even now, by buying club merchandise. Uh, and he likes to think, says Chris, that he's helping the club's finances. But how important is the money Chris is spending on merchandise to a club like Norwich? Is it presumably he says it's more so to a smaller club than a bigger club? And I wouldn't class Norwich as a small club in particular, not with the size of their their fan base and the support they get but it's it is 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 you know if chris is going in there and spending 100 quid on merchandise is that actually helping the club uh is it helping yes because it will normally be from the club store um the trouble with merchandise is is that most clubs are on fairly low commissions it's it's estimated to average just seven percent so if he spends 100 quid norwich gets seven um, oh, wow. So that's yeah. not great. I mean, they, they do get a flat fee from the kit manufacturers, and on top of that, they then get their seven percent commission. I mean, if, if he really wants to help the club in terms of extra money, the, the, I, w- I would suggest looking at uh, Norwich's figures. Um, they've got a, a fantastic catering arm, 
clearly connected to the owners via Delia and co on. Yeah. And, and there, of course, you know, the club would keep all of the profits. Um, so that might be better. Uh, you know, hopefully it will be in a position where it's been, in, where it is, has been able to reopen. Um, so, um, you know, go, go and have a slap up meal there uh, and the club will make more money out of it. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, hopefully it'll be a memorable experience for you. Did you ask the Baroness for advice on answering that question, Kieran? Uh, no, I didn't. Because it strikes me that that would be the Baroness's answer to the to any problem is buy buy a slap up meal. That'll be the way out of that problem, possibly. That's, uh, okay. well, we have we have just booked our first meal post COVID. Have for, you? Where are you going? Yes, uh, we are going to a place called the Ginger Man in uh, in uh, in Brighton, um, and, and I took the Baroness there for uh, her most recent significant birthday. Um, and I got into trouble because I was staring at two women uh, over her shoulder for the whole meal. How did she know there were two women over her shoulder? Uh, Because she said something on the lines of, why are you not looking into my eyes? Um, And the reason I was doing this, because this is about as bright a story as it can get, um, these two women um, were uh, were a lesbian couple, both of whom were extremely attractive, and and the best way I can describe their behaviour is that they were furky-foodling underneath the table. And I was going, oh, my God, this is the greatest night of my life. Uh, And even she looked over at all and said, oh, my God, I've never seen that before. You didn't say that out loud on your wife's birthday, did you? Well... For that reason... (laughs) Well, I suppose I suppose the Baroness. If you're out with the Baroness and you're staring over her shoulder, Kieran, there's only two options: is two beautiful women, furtively fondling, as you say, or there's a spreadsheet on the wall, and there's unlikely to be a spreadsheet on the wall of a fancy restaurant, even in Brighton. I'm guessing. Now, um, before uh, uh, our interview with Mark Lynch, we have another question and some more questions afterwards. This question is from uh, Bobby Boritsov. Uh, who probably isn't Scottish, but sounds like he could have been your accountant in Moscow, to be honest. Um, (laughs) But Bobby, Bobby's question, um, this has come up before, and I'll explain at the end of the question why I think it's still important to ask it. Um, Bobby Boritsov uh, wants to know, following on from the Man City case, how is it that a club like Chelsea are not found guilty of breaking FFP rules? I know that since they were implemented, Chelsea have run a much tighter ship in terms of spending, but if, as Kieran has pointed out before, they have an operating loss of £100 million, which is simply covered by Abramovich's checkbook. How is that not breaking rules? Now, to listeners that have been with us from the start of this pod, uh, hi, Roy, hi, Martin, this may seem like a well-travelled path, but I'm I'm with Bobby. It, no matter how many times you explain this, it still seems odd to me that what Chelsea are doing isn't flouting fair play rules and what Man City were accused of is or turned out in court not to be. Um, well, the the reason why Chelsea have uh, managed to satisfy financial fair play is um, if you're making an operating loss, your, your operating loss, you know, and we, we discuss this when we're talking about Palace, this is, these are the losses you're making 364 days a year. Yeah. And if you remember we said with Palace, day 365, they sold Aaron Wan-Bissaka and that was their get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. Chelsea have done exactly the same to a much greater extent than any other club in the Premier League through player sales. Over the course of the past five years, Chelsea have made a £400 million profit from selling the likes of Oscar, uh, uh, Eden Hazard, Diego Costa, and so on. But the, the Chelsea business model, I don't know whether you, you've seen, is that they, 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 they this season have got 42 players out on loan. Mm. 
Now, some of those players I've never seen in a Chelsea shirt, yeah. and you or I will never see in a Chelsea yeah. shirt. But on the back of that loan, they'll be selling them for two or three million pounds a pop. And you put a few of those together. So what Chelsea do is, um, as a result of things like the elite player performance plan, which we've discussed at length before, they... They're like a factory farm. They're like one of these ships that you see, these huge, huge trawlers, and they just trawl up all of the talent, um, not only from London, but now elsewhere in the UK. He's uh, also successfully in the EU until the rules change. And then they they develop these players for a couple of years, and then they try to move them on at a profit. And, and this has been very, very successful for Chelsea. So whilst they are making these huge operating losses and uh, – Abramovich is writing out these checks. And the, re- the reason why he's having to write out the checks is one of our, our favourite words on the pod, amortisation. And what we mean by amortisation is that when you sell a player, you take all of the profits on the sale in that year's account. But when you buy a player, and they spent a quarter of a billion pounds on buying players uh, last year, you spread that over the life of the contract. So it's only going to cost Chelsea £50 million a year in profits, but £250 million a year in cash. Mm. You know what worries me about that is that if if this afternoon, in about two hours' time, somebody says to me, can you explain what amortisation is? I'll go, no, I haven't got, I really haven't. And every time you explain it to me, it goes in a little bit. It stays in, each time you explain it to me, it stays in a little bit more. So I reckon after another 10, 20 more pods, I might have it in there for good. But in in the meantime, keep explaining it every week, Kieran. Um, uh, Perhaps for our 100th pod, we're probably not that far away from it, that you could could explain amortisation. That could be your... Your gift to the nation. Oh, what? Well, well, so I've got to do an exam, have I, on our 100th pod? How does that work? It's supposed to be a celebration, and I'm up all night worried about what we're going to do. Oh, my God, I've got to explain amortisation. Do you know what I would do, Kieran? I would simply write it down in front of me and then pretend that I was not reading it out. I'm professional. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, um, it's interview time. Mark Lynch is uh, the ex-Man United defender who found himself competing for first-team places against Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Wes Brown and John O'Shea, uh, and basically is a competition he couldn't win. So he ended up at Sunderland, Yeovil, Rotherham and Stockport before, uh, in his own words, falling out of love with the game. But he spoke to Kieran about what happened next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Mark. 
welcome to the Price of Football show. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Thanks. And, and I think I've got to be uh, transparent here. I've, I've known Mark for a few years. Uh, when when I first met Mark, I was uh, a 17 stone slob. Uh, and, Mark, and Mark transformed me. Mark, Mark, uh, Mark was my personal trainer. Um, and Mark transformed me into a, I was running more than a thousand miles a year uh, doing marathons. So uh, I've got a lot to thank Mark for, uh, as does the Baroness. Uh, so she sends her love and best wishes to you as well, Mark. Uh, she's uh, she's still working out nonstop. I've still got only I've only got one working leg as I've had for the last <laughs> four years. Say, we haven't discussed the old knee issue, have we yet? So we might need to discuss that later. Indeed, indeed. So, so first of all, um, you've you've made the transformation from football to non-football. Um, so, what did you find were the were the biggest challenges in in setting up your own business? Um, the biggest challenge, I, th- I think, coming out of football, you, you grow up within a footballing bubble. Everyone says it, but it's it's a fact. You do. You grow up within a footballing bubble. Um, you don't really realise that leaving football is ultimately going to happen. You don't really realise it until pretty much the very end. I started making plans maybe two or three years before um, before I did actually quit. Um, and luckily enough, I did do that because I only I quit when I was I was either thirty or thirty one. I can't quite remember the actual age now. Um, but I quit fairly early. It wasn't through a physical sense, but mentally, just didn't the game didn't turn me on anymore. Um, it was a bit of a chore getting out of bed in the morning for it, and it just I no longer had that get up and go to to actually want to go and perform on a football pitch anymore. So for me, that was the deciding factor in wanting to to actually quit. Um, the level that I got to at the time, I was playing with Stockport. Um, we've just been relegated from League Two to the conference. Um, you know, there's no money in the lower leagues anymore. There wasn't then. So falling out of the league, there's going to be another pay cut. Um, there's a whole host of factors that actually went into me deciding that that I was going to quit and going to retire. And looking back, it was probably the best decision I ever made. Um, I went in and set up my own business, like you say. Um, it took me a while to get to where I am now, um, but through a lot of hard work and determination and you know, wanting to be the best I can be in terms of what I do. Um, I've now got, a, you know, a really successful fitness business um, off the back of it. Um, don't get me wrong, it's been a lot of hard work, um, a lot of worry, um, especially with COVID and things like that, but even going back further. Um, but, you know, I've still got business still earning money and, and doing well. So it's great and it's, um, it's really pleasing to see, you know, that people can come out of football and, you know, do something else and do something that they're passionate about because you do hear a lot of stories nowadays about people that come out of football and it's all doom and gloom. So, you know, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've come out of football, left it completely behind and, you know, made a success of it. That's terrific, terrific. I mean, and I'm, I'm testament, you know, myself and, and Gail, we uh, we, we both uh, all clients for over three, four years, weren't you? So, you know, it's... It's great that I get to work with, you know, really nice people, you know, like yourself and like girl, mate. So, um, but definitely it's just a great, a great industry to work in. It really is fitness. Love it. Terrific. Terrific. I mean, you, you, you sort of said that you were in, in that football bubble. Um, given, given the nature of football in that 
many players are on relatively short-term contracts. Do, do you think clubs could do more? The, the PFA have reported that 40% of players upon retirement go bankrupt. And that, that's an absolutely scary statistic for an industry where I think there's, there's a huge myths about football is awash with money. Clearly at the Premier League level, um, there is a lot of money for for players and clubs and executives and so on. Do you think the PFA could be doing more in, in terms of preparing their members for when they come out the game? Do you think clubs should be advising or agents or, or ultimately should the players themselves be taking more responsibility? Or is, is it that you're not encouraged to do so because the focus is on the next match, the next training session, you know, the next promotion challenge and so on? I suppose you, your, your daily goals are set you know, around your fixtures and you know the, the games that you've got coming up. Um I think as an individual, you've got to look at yourself and look at you know what you want to do when you retire. Um, ultimately, the book falls with you. I think that's one thing that I learned through football is the fact that day to day, my decisions are always governed by someone else. I a manager, you know, selects me to play in the team. Coaches liking what I do on the pitch. Um, agents being able to get you a, a you know a move if you, you you're out of the team or you're struggling. So my life was always governed by someone else. Um, I only think it's, you know, since I took that away and started, you know, looking after myself and making my own decisions that, that you know, life has been, you know, extremely good. Um, so I think, you know, the book's got to fall with the player and the individual to actually have the get up and go to want to, to do something once they retire. It's, it's very easy, I think, to, to come out of football and go, oh, what do I do now type thing, you know. That that boat's already sailed in a way because you've you've already retired, you've already come to the end. You know you should have been preparing beforehand. So I think ultimately it does come down to the individual. Um, I think it can be hard sometimes, certainly in the lower leagues for footballers. You know, long term contracts in the lower leagues are scarce to say the least. Big money contracts don't exist in the lower leagues. Um, so you know you've got to be if you are playing further down the. Uh, the footballing lad, you know, you've got to be savvy with your money. You've got to be savvy with your decisions. I mean, not all players earn, you know, hundreds of thousand pounds a week. And, you know, playing for six months in the Premier League on a contract like that, and, you know, you're earning a lot, a lot of money. So it's not the case for, for everyone. So it's it's very much down to individual. Um, maybe clubs could be more supportive, you know, pushing players into um, further education before they retire. Certainly the PFA, um, the PFA were always good for me in terms of subsidising um, qualifications or further qualifications that I was taking outside of football. Um, probably not so much in the fact of, you know, bringing players in and saying, look, you're coming to the end of your career and have your thoughts about this. Um, I know certainly early on in my footballing days, the PFA were there in a, um, in a sense of, um, education because I did a BTEC national diploma in sports science and in and around that they were quite supportive in helping you get your education your qualifications and looking at further career paths but once I came out of that BTEC it was very much then it's all just football so there was a, a start and end point to that that advice at the start and then from the age of maybe 18 19 onwards you know I never spoke to the PFA about anything like that until I was maybe you know, 28, 29 and coming towards the, the latter phases of my career. So maybe there could be, you know, more support in the middle, um, you know, certainly on a, a service that they could provide in terms of, you know, p- players know they have access to them regularly and can, you know, speak to someone. Um, so, yeah, I, I do generally think it's down to the individual and, you know, what they want and what they're thinking. Um, as a support network, you know, agents in and around the players could also maybe do more too. 
Um, but again, that's down to the agent what they want to provide the player. You know, the the, the agents that the player chooses as well. It could be part of their um, their services. So it's you know, there's a whole host of things that go in and around that. But ultimately, it's I think it's the player that's got to have the get up and go to want to do something after after football. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, you you said about making savvy business decisions and so on. Looking back now, what would you say has been your worst financial decision, um, either connected to the game or outside? Um, I've always been very careful with my money. Not that I've ever had a lot of it, um, but I've always been fairly careful. The worst decision I ever made was when I moved to Sunderland. Um, I bought a, I bought a flat just outside the city centre of Sunderland. Um, I still have it to this day, and it's caused me endless issues uh, for the past, well, I moved there in 2004, so we're coming on for 16 years now. Um, I've still got that place and I can't shift it. And I now, I now live in Manchester. Um, value in and around the area has gone down a lot. Um, I'll have, if I do sell the property, say tomorrow, I, I would lose a lot of money. I'd owe the mortgage company a lot of money. Um, it's just, it's, you know, it's one of them things. It was at the time I always had advice. People were saying, you know, wherever you go, wherever you move to, look, buy a property. When you move on, you then rent it out. Um, it was something that I kind of, I tried to do. Um, so I bought when I went to Sunderland um, and I bought when I moved to, to Yeovil Town as well. But ultimately I'm stuck with this flat and I can't shift it, um, which is which is a real shame in a way because I'm now stuck in Manchester and having to rent because I've still got this this place in Sunderland. So in terms of financial decisions, that's been the, the worst one I've, I've made. But in hindsight, you know, I look back and I, I like the flat when I bought it. Um, I enjoyed living there. It was only because I was at Sunderland for a year that I had to leave and had to look to try and sell it or to rent it out. Um, but yeah, in terms of a bad financial decision, that was um, that's probably the worst one I've ever made. But, you know, looking back, I probably wouldn't have, I, I, would make, I would do it differently had I looked back now. But at the time, it seemed the right decision to make. Um, I wish I'd have bought in Manchester before I left because I probably would have made uh, money on the property in and around the area that I now live in if I'd have bought it when I left. So um, wrong time, wrong place, unfortunately for me. It's just the, the housing market took a dip dip there once I bought it. Um, and at the minute, I haven't been able to, to get rid of it. So um, live and learn by these decisions, don't you? Uh, just one of those things, unfortunately. That's a shame. That's real. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you've now got a successful business of your own. You, you're involved in the fitness world. How have you had to change in respect of the pandemic? Because presumably, you, you know, clearly when everybody was in lockdown, you wouldn't have been able to, to have classes. You wouldn't have been able to deal with clients on a face-to-face basis. Um, have you become part of the Zoom generation uh, in terms of the way that you now interact with, uh, with, with your customers and clients? Massively, yeah. So we're doing this conversation now via what's this app, Zencaster, and it's there's, I'm not looking at a screen with a face on the other side of it, and I can't really work it out, Kieran, um, which is quite strange. I mean, because my life has literally come behind um, a computer screen now, looking at a face on the other side. Um, when COVID kicked in, um, or just before COVID kicked in, um, I took the decision maybe three or four days before they put us into lockdown to to quit my face to face classes because it just didn't seem right at the time. So I, I took the decision to, to shut them down. Um, I remember having a conversation with a few of my clients in the, the school playground when I was picking my, my daughters up and they were saying, look, Mark, you can't stop. You can't stop what you do. People genuinely love what you do. I was like, well, there's not a lot I can do. You know, if I can't see you face to face, then, you know, it's, it's taken away my 
my ability to train you and you know do what I do. Um, so as it all happened, obviously I took the decision to go down into or to to shut my business down two or three days before lockdown happened, but. I contacted maybe 10, 15 of my most tried, trusted and regular clients and said, look, format I'm going to just try. I've never done it before. Um, let's just try a, um, a fitness class online and see how it goes. So um, we did it. We tried it. Um, looking back now, it's probably one of the, the worst hours of fitness I've ever provided because I'd never, ever used that platform before. Um, and it was complete enough to test. But, you know, the guys being the guys and trusting me and trusting what I do they all said genuinely enjoyed it genuinely loved it and would 100% pay for a service like that so two days later um, I set up my system on my software put up some new dates for classes and advertise them as virtual classes um, and they got me through COVID um, which was amazing because when I had that conversation with my clients in the playground I literally I had no business at that point um, so to have completely flip my business to go from nothing to then still having something and providing a service to people, which brings me in money. Um, you know, it was, I did extremely well to do that. And I know a lot of personal trainers that, um, through COVID, you know, haven't done, done anything at all. So, so still have been providing, you know, fitness classes for between 30 to 50 people a day online. Um, it was, it was a, you know, a fairly big achievement because nothing scarier than you know not knowing what you're doing it's the old adage of um oh, the best way to describe it fear of the unknown in a way never done it before obviously i've conducted a fitness class and done many of them but never done one online like we when we tried to sit, set this zencaster call up we struggled to oh, struggle to download to um google chrome so um to put my fitness business in the hands of the internet and the gods in in a way so to speak um it was hard, but you know, it's a leap of faith at the end of the day. I decided to take it and it is now a big part of, of what I do. Half my clients saying, you know, you can't get rid of this format. We genuinely love it. So it's something that I do want to keep when, well, if and when we do turn back to, uh, to some normality again. So, um, it's been a really interesting three or four months in terms of my business and, and how I've kept it going. Terrific. Terrific. Um, sort of listening to what you have said, and you said at the start that you were struggling to get out of bed in terms of football. You know, football fans are obsessed with the game. Is it fair to say that your experiences in the industry made you fall out of love with football? Yeah, um, some really good highs in football, and when you get the highs in football, it's, it's the it's the best feeling in the world. It's amazing, but the lows. The lows can be really low, and they are they are tough and challenging times. And I think a fair way of summing up my career is I had more lows than I did highs, certainly towards the end, anyway. Um, and it, it just got to a point where I just thought, you know, there's, you know, I, I go out and I generally try my best every single time, every single training session, every single game. I'll always give my one hundred percent and try my best. Um, and it never ever felt like I got my rewards from for the efforts that I put in. So. Um, yeah, it was, you know, one of those decisions that, you know, I look back on the thing, you know, I made the right decision at the right time for me, uh, for sure. Terrific. Well, well, Mark, well, congratulations on what you've managed to achieve, A, since football and also B, during this horrendous COVID uh, issue. Um, I hope your business goes from strength to strength. Thanks so very much for coming on the show. 
And uh, yeah, if people want to give you a follow on Instagram or Twitter, where, where's the best place they can find you? Yes, for sure. Um, Instagram is uh, MRK5Fitness and Facebook is MRK5Fitness as well. I'm not down with the Twitter crew. It's just not, it's not for me. It's all about the Insta and, uh, and Facebook in terms of my uh, social media work for the business and things like that. So um, MRK5Fitness, give us a follow and um, feel free to get a virtual workout any time of the day. Virtual workouts are now live and recorded as well, so you can get a recorded version of the classes too, which are now being sent out, which is uh, another aspect of the business which is going well. So, yeah, COVID's not been all bad, my friend. Terrific. Mark, so thanks again for giving me up your time and uh, love to you and the family. And uh, I'll probably go and sign up now. I need to get off that sofa. I'm back to 17 stone. For sure. I can't believe you haven't been on them already. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers, Kieran. Pleasure to speak to you. It's 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 really interesting that you know Mark is probably aware of this as well that he's the answer to a pub quiz question because uh, he played one game for Man United and scored one own goal um, in a Champions League game, but it it kind of confounds the expectations. There's, there are so many people listening to this who who would just think, my God, he played for Man United, he must be spending the rest of his life with his feet up, getting the occasional pundit job he must have made. But it's it's not the case, is it? For so many ex professional footballers. They're just trying to make a living like the rest of us, aren't they, after they leave the game? But very much so. And remember, we, we saw that PFA report, which indicated that 40% of players go bankrupt yeah, after, yeah. after leaving the game. Um, and I think you know, Mark is uh, – you know, I've, I've known Mark for a few years, and I, I am a huge amount because he, he was my personal trainer. He, he turned me into a 1,000-mile-a-year runner. So I, I, he's, he's an amazing guy. He's a great guy. Um, and for me, the sad story was I'd, I'd come in on a Monday morning and see him down the gym and say, "Yeah, what do you think about United results on this weekend?" And he said, I, "I don't know, don't know what the result was." Oh you know, wow! He, he completely fell out of love with the game, and that's and, and you, know, you, know, you know, from what he said in the interview, it, it became fairly clear why. And perhaps we as football fans don't appreciate what what players do have to go through. Um, during their careers, and and that that is a tragedy in many ways. It is, yeah. Um, a thousand miles a year sounds very impressive, Kieran. If you if you say three miles a day, that sounds less impressive. And also, I suspect you're doing less now since Ocado started delivering, aren't you? Um, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Uh, back to our questions. It, this is an interesting question from Tim Conlon because it it it, it raises an issue that uh, arises from it raises arises. You know, I should think about these words more often before I do the pod. Uh, Tim, basically, his question is about stadium sales for inflated values, which is something we've spoken about on and off since the very beginning of this pod. Uh, and Tim wants to know whether clubs are not creating a long-term problem for themselves when they defend the valuation of, say, £50 million for a stadium. Would they not then have to pay a higher rent to substantiate that valuation? Well, well very much so. And, and uh, I think the point that Tim's raised is, is very valid. If you take a look at Derby County, they sold the ground for around about eighty million pounds. But looking at the small print of their accounts, um, they're only going to have to pay rent of one point one million on it. So that gives them a yield. And, and I picked this up from watching uh, Dion Dublin do um, his his homes his homes program. Uh, program under the hammer. Homes under the hammer. Uh, it, it's a, do you know what? It's a it's a it's a lovely running joke amongst TV comedy writers. The way that Dion Dublin indicates stairs. You what? Next time you watch it, he always seems to be astonished that there are stairs in any house. 
that he that he couldn't think of any other way of getting from. The, but he does this elaborate mime where he goes, and there are stairs. You watch out. You'll never watch Homes Under the Hammer. Uh, both of us need jobs that don't keep us at home so much during the daytime, don't we? Essentially, anyway. Anyway, back to Dion Dublin. <laughs> Um, so, so Darby's, or rather Darby's landlord's yield is one point four percent. That's that's pretty bobbins, isn't it? So, yeah. Can, and, can and you that, explain that, what? Can you explain what that actually means? Uh, yeah. So, so yield is 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 the rent divided by how much you paid for the house. Right. So they're getting one point one million pounds each year on something for which they paid eighty million. So it's going to take them. It's going to take them around about uh, you know on that on that basis. It's going to take them you know fifty five years to to get their money back. Right. Um, yeah. That, that so you, you you wouldn't do that in business. So what would um, what would be a decent yield in on a on a business premises? Um, well, I think you'd be looking normally for six or seven percent. Right. Okay. Um, oh, right. So it's a long so, way behind that, then. Okay. Long way behind. Yeah. Um, if, if you take a look at Aston Villa, they're paying rent of two point six million on a sale of fifty-seven, so that's four and a half percent. And then you go to Sheffield Wednesday. According to their accounts, they're not paying any rent at all. Ah. And yet they sold the ground for sixty million. So you know, it it, it does add weight to the EFL's case, although. Um, you know, my understanding is that both Derby and Sheffield Wednesday are extremely confident they're going to successfully defend the charges um, uh, given to them by the EFL. And, and, and those rulings, we're hoping, are going to come uh, in the next week or two. We've been saying that for quite some time now, haven't we, basically? We, we really have been saying that for quite some time. Um, uh, we have one, two, three questions left. And our next one is from Martin Harvey, uh, who says in brackets, this is a simple question. I'll be the judge of that, Martin. Thank you. Uh, Martin wants to know about the structure of player loan agreements. If the players Is the player's salary rather paid by the parent club when out on loan, with all the loan fee and wage contributions being paid by the loaning club to the parent club, or does the loan player get everything from the temporary club? So, basically, who pays who when a player's on loan? The, the parent club has the contract of employment, so therefore they are obliged to pay the player's wages. And, and this is important when we're operating now in a world in which administration is very possible. So um, that's something to be aware of. In terms of the payments, that these tend to be split into two or three elements – First of all, there's a potential loan fee. So if you take a look at uh, Coutinho at at, uh, Bayern Munich, um, Bayern have paid uh, FC Barcelona a £9 million loan fee for one season to to allow Coutinho to play for them. But again, if we we go back to our uh, just discussing yields, that's a pretty rubbish yield for Mm. Barcelona, who paid paid £130 million for a player on the five-year contract. Um, a lot will depend um, in terms of the loan fee as to um, the club who's making the loan. So we've already mentioned Chelsea. They've they've always made a lot of money from these um, because they, they tended to have some very good promising players. If you look at Tammy Abrahams when he was going between Swansea and clubs of that nature and Derby, you know, they, they were getting uh, fairly big loan fees, often uh, often in seven figures, uh, and often they were had incentives. So you know, if, if the club gets promoted then there could be additional amount paid. I think that's the case with with Ben White at Leeds, who's just gone up. Um, but it will also, you have to look at the player in terms of the stage of his career. So so I remember when Wayne Bridge came to Brighton for a year on loan, he'd fallen out of favour with the manager um, and we were simply paying 10% of his wages. And, and you know, it was meant that 
he wasn't he wasn't kicking his heels around in Manchester, uh, causing any disruption as far as the manager was concerned. He, he got a chance to to move on in terms of his career, um, and, and Manchester City got a little bit of money back. So it, it really does depend upon whether the players, uh, you know, a young player or a more experienced player, has fallen out, um, and then the negotiations go from there. In terms of who's responsible for his wages, it is always the parent club. Well, do you know what, Kieran? I'm a little bit surprised about that because I, I thought I knew the answer to this question. But if if it's always the parent club responsible for his wages, why do you so often hear pundits and fans saying, oh, he's been loaned out to get him off the wage bill? Well, because the, the hiring club will make a contribution to that wage bill. Um, so if, if it's... So, you know, we, we paid 10%. Sometimes it will be 50%. Sometimes, if, if he's a promising young player, such as Tammy Abraham, Chelsea might have said to Swansea when, when he played for them, I think it was two seasons ago, we want 100% of his wages right. and we're going to charge you a million pounds loan fee as well. So it, it, you, you have to look at it from case to case. And a lot of these deals will also be linked to the number of minutes that he plays. Right. So if, if he plays... Uh, you know, 80% of the time or he gets picked 80% of the time, then the parent club says, we'll we'll bear 80% of his wage bill because as far as we're concerned, this is part of his development and we're benefiting from that. If he's if he's if he ends up in the reserves of the club, then it could be that the 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 hiring club ends up having to go and pay uh pay a lot a higher much higher proportion of his wages because they're not helping his his development as a, as a as a professional player. Okay. Okay. Now our penultimate question is from Dara Martin. Now uh, this is a simple question, actually. Martin's question. He says it was simple. It turned out to be surprisingly complicated. But this is a simple question it's also a very good one and it's also one of those questions that you think why haven't i answered that before like royalty payments for music at grounds last week dara's question is quite simply is it better financially to finish second in the championship or to win the playoffs it's probably slightly better to win the playoffs um simply because you end up going to wembley and the chances are that will result in a huge boost in merchandise sales um, whereas if you feel if you finish second in the championship, um, you get promoted, but there's no additional prize money. Um, so so on that basis, it, there's a slight benefit. But remember, if you have finished as runners up in the championship, you've got an extra three weeks of planning for recruitment on organizing deals with sponsors so it's it's a it's it's a bit of a poison chalice i mean there, there is this this gentleman's agreement which you know, we we've ended up being fairly cynical on this show about football but this is one of the things which which sort of makes me proud once again to be associated in any way simply as a fan with the game is that there's a gentleman's agreement that the club that wins the the match at wembley they normally waive their rights to their share of the gate receipts and they give it to the loser instead oh. on the grounds of we're going to pick up a hundred million pounds in a Premier League TV deal next season and you're going to be still schlepping around um you know in, in the championship on on that particular deal so and, and I think I, I can't remember who's which side set this up but you know god bless them I think it's it's a fantastic gesture and it does sort of restore your faith once again in there are plenty of good people um in football as well as some of the the scumbags which we end up talking about yeah I, I'm, I'm I did not know that Kieran and I'm really I'm really pleased to hear it and I'm going to take an educated guess that it probably would have been Palace who started that such a nice thing to do I can only imagine one club who would have actually had the generosity to think of that in the first place and I, I tell you what whatever you think about football at the moment 
watching to see whether West Brom, Fulham, or Brentford end up second in the in the championship is is pretty exciting. Unless you're a West Brom, Fulham, or Brentford fan, I imagine it's. Um, it, I, I mean, I just thought yesterday because obviously as a as a London football fan, I, I will obviously root for the football fan. I, I just think it'd be exciting to see Brentford in the Premier League. So. There you go. I have nothing against West Brom. Uh, I'd like to see Fulham in the Premier League as well, but um, it, it it really. I mean that that is it, it's a basket case of a league financially, Kieran. And as you say, the standard of football isn't brilliant, but it is exciting. And now our last question uh, is from Paul, uh, just Paul. Now Paul starts his question, I think, with a mistake because Paul says, "Correct me if I'm wrong." Uh, Paul, he will. He he definitely will. <laughs> In fact, he'll be hoping you are wrong because he loves nothing better than correcting someone who's wrong. Um, but Paul says, before 1992, I believe, says Paul, TV money was split uh, 50% to Division 1, 25% Division 2, and 12.5% each, Division 3 and 4. And what a pleasure it is, Kieran, to be able to say Division 3 and 4, which is what it should be, essentially. Well, they are. Division 1, Division 2, Division 3. You know where you stand. It, it, you can't be confused about what division you're in. Um, again, says Paul, I might be wrong, but uh, currently around 97% of TV money is now going to the Premier League. Surely the current crisis should be a catalyst for a fair redistribution rather than the current crumbs from the rich man's table model. Uh, Paul, I absolutely agree with the sentiment, but I have no idea on the numbers, which kind of sums up my role on this pod, to be perfectly honest. Uh, are you going to correct him, Kieran? Is he wrong? That is, is, is absolutely spot on. Oh, absolutely, cool. well done. Congratulations. Absolutely nailed it. You've upset him, Paul. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I like the fact that our listeners are are, are really smart. You know, I've, I've got nothing but respect for them. They 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 keep me on my toes as well as we both know, and, and correct me when I make mistakes. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, the, the whole purpose about the Premier League and why it was set up uh, was to to stop that distribution, and and, in, and and it's it's been very successful in doing so. Um, if, if we take a look at uh, what the EFL get um, from the Premier League TV deal, this is uh, an agreed percentage. And, and they signed this off with the Premier League a few years ago at the same time that they agreed to the Elite Player Performance Plan. Um, so the way that it works is that clubs now in the championship get 6% of the evenly split money in the Premier League. So that's not the whole pot. And remember, there's there's four, four or five pots. In League One, the clubs get 0.9%. And in League Two, 0.6%. Now, I don't know whether you've read Private Eye uh, this week. Um, They've got a big, uh, they've got a big article about Wigan. And they said, well, you know, it's all very well for the the EFL to be saying um, that, uh, the split is, is unfair, um, but you've got to look at the inception of the uh, of, of the Premier League, and, and and there was there are common parties uh, to to uh, to those to those agreements who who now seem to be sort of taking an opposite view to when the Premier League was set up. Isn't it strange to hear you say so openly that the Premier League was was set up to prevent that fair distribution of money? when at the time we all fell for the argument that it's to improve the England game, the England team will be a better team for the fact that we're getting better talent. And it, it just, it was just naked greed. All, and I, I I don't think I realised that at the time. And that's the sort of thing I'd have been looking for. It, it just seemed to me a different way of organising football. And you kind of bought into the fact that, yeah, it's going to make the game better. And it just, it simply was a ruse to, 
get more money for the top teams, and it's 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 puts you off it a little bit, doesn't it? Really. As a romantic, yes. I mean, there have been improvements. Yeah, the, the quality of the football in the Premier League is is sensational. That nobody can deny that. Yeah. Um, it, it has made it a, a worldwidely popular sport. Um, and you know, the, the range of players that have come into the game on on the back of the money of the Premier League has has made it a successful export. So there are positives, but. Um, you know, for the for the smaller clubs, it's it's no doubt it's it's reduced uh, the benefits to them. Yeah, I have to say it hasn't put me off the Premier League that much that I don't still want to be in it for the next three or four seasons. But it it, yeah, it just beggars belief. And we've said this all the time. It, for, for the amount of money that a club in lower leagues or non-league football goes out of business for, you're talking about clubs like Oswestry Street going out of business for the lack of thirty thousand pound. When you see the money at the top level of the game, it is. It's simply wrong. And I know people will treat me to say, you've got no head for business and why should clubs be treated differently, blah, blah, blah. Listen to the pods going back to show one and you'll find out why it is. It is wrong. But Paul, I'm glad that you were right because he would have been chomping at the bit to correct you and then he would have gone straight to the Baroness and would have said, oh, you won't believe what this idiot Paul tweeted in, tweeted in with a question. But you can't do that now. And um, even as you see, I'm surprised she's still talking to you if you ruined her birthday by staring at two lesbians all the way through it, to be perfectly honest, Kieran. Even I would... Well, I wouldn't. I'd do it surreptitiously because we all... All all men have that thing where they've got much broader peripheral vision than their partners realise, haven't they? Um, (laughs) This this is an avenue we shouldn't really be exploring in 2020. But anyway, uh, if you have any questions for us, and, and once again, it's just proved that all your questions lead us into very different avenues. Some of them avenues that I really wish... I need a reversing sound. I need a kind of beep beep like bin lorries make, just so I can press that and we can get out of the cold sack that we find ourselves in. Uh, if you do have a question for us, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Thursday with news, and it's the last week of the Premier League, but then hopefully only for four weeks. So, Kieran, I'll talk to you on Thursday. Terrific. Stay safe, boys and girls. The Price of Football. I'm for the